Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people with news, views and expert interviews. Hi and welcome to the very first episode of Constructive Voices, the new podcast focusing on the big topics of discussion in the construction industry. In each episode, our team will bring you insights, experiences, news and views from across the industry, giving you a unique perspective on what's happening now and the future that's being built. Our team includes Henry MacDonald, a former Guardian and BBC journalist, Peter Finn, who as well as running his own construction business, is also a builder on TV, and journalist Matt Banks. And there's me, Steve Randall, a radio presenter and podcaster, stepping into the foreman role for the podcast by ensuring that all the bits and all the people are in the right place at the right time. For episode one, we're talking about the vital role that the digital transformation has in the construction industry and how technology has helped keep those working on site safe during the pandemic. We'll dig down into the aggregates industry and how it and the construction industry are so tightly linked And we'll find out how a former carpentry apprentice is now one of the best-known faces on TV. Constructive Voices, brought to you by Lewis Access. British-made scaffold towers and access products. Technology is virtually inescapable in the modern world, and it's shaping both the present and certainly the future of the construction industry. Biosite Systems supports the digital transformation of the industry through the development and deployment of technology-enabled solutions. Michael Bryant is their commercial director. He's been talking to Matt Banks about what the business does and how the industry has adapted to the challenges of the past year. We're a market leader in workforce management solutions specifically for uh, the construction industry. The business has been around since uh, 2010, so 10 years old now. And our aim is to support the digital transformation of the construction industry uh, through technology-enabled solutions that essentially try to support efficiency, safety, and compliance on site. The business has grown um, significantly, especially over the last sort of five or six years. Predominantly, the reason behind that is the fact that we work collaboratively um, with our customers, um, and everything that we do is very bespoke. So we design and manufacture all our own hardware um, and software in-house. And they're solutions that address workforce productivity challenges that some of our customers may well be facing. Um, And the business has gone on quite a journey um, in the last couple of years in terms of development of that data. But I'm sure that's something that we'll probably go into later on in this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You mentioned uh, challenges that certain businesses are uh, facing. Obviously, there's quite a large one going on at the moment. I'd like to ask how Biosite has adapted since the government issued safety guidances on construction sites. Probably one of the biggest challenges that that I'm sure not just Biosite as a business, but all businesses have have faced for a very long time. Um, So since the onset of COVID, um, obviously, Naturally, given the products that we, that we offer our customers, a lot of our customers came to us to say, you know, what, what can we do? Um, obviously, there was also in the early days a lot of conflicting guidance on perhaps how construction sites um, and operatives should be operating. I'm sure you remember the debate early on whether or not construction should should shut, and that also made national news. So. We've been working um, extremely proactively to respond sort of on behalf of what we call our partners in construction, which is essentially our customers. We are fortunate enough to have an in-house uh, research and development team, both on the hardware and software functionalities that we provide. And we've been researching, uh, testing, developing a whole new range of products to respond to the challenges of COVID-19 and to help our customers keep their keep their sites running um, safely and effectively. 
Our COVID uh, response solutions range is, a, I guess, a combination of practical and technical uh, solutions and systems. So we've had things like mandatory hand sanitization systems, which is linked to the access control systems to enforce that before access to site is granted. Uh, facial detection, that is detection of face as opposed to facial recognition. So facial detection and temperature measurement systems. Uh, also a range of digital systems to help manage inductions, training processes, and manage that off-site effectively. So digitizing what previously may have been a fairly interactive and paper-based process, which obviously, of course, nowadays has has that inherent risk of, of transmission. Our approach as a business pre-COVID, I suppose, as well as has always been that there's no one site fits all, one size fits all, sorry solution so we work closely with our customers to understand their challenges um, understand their issues and their problems which despite the fact that they're all construction companies um, and they all operate in the same industry they are vastly different uh, the challenges that they face Um, and we try to work with them to understand those challenges and then develop alongside with their input and, and then bring to market flexible solutions and also alternative technology. So, yeah, it's definitely been busy few months for us from a research and development point of view, uh, but, it's, but it's certainly been what I would say is a successful one. You mentioned your workforce management and access control systems, and I wanted to sort of ask what role those play on site, particularly post-COVID. Again, a very interesting one because difference of opinion is vast across the industry. Um to us as a business, you know, workforce management systems naturally play a, a, you know, a number of different roles on site and a number of different key roles on site as well, um, both with respect to obviously outside of managing COVID-19 transmission risk. You've got your, your health and safety and your compliance element. So you're looking at, you know, the visibility of the workforce um, that's on site, which obviously also gives you the track and trace element or traceability. You've also got things like, you know, level of supervision that you've got on site from first aiders and an automatic fire roll call. And again, this is what I said earlier on in the podcast and towards the beginning about the, the kind of shift over the last few years in the perception. Um, it's, it's definitely moved away and COVID has accelerated this. It's definitely moved away from, you know, access control. And the focus has largely become on, you know, there is more to it than access control and it is about you know the workforce management from a COVID-19 point of view um, obviously um, the system can be configured to help manage the number of workers that are on site um, also sites that have got split zones you're obviously also able to see uh, how many individuals in each zones monitor shift patterns um, and obviously uh, mentioned as well obviously the ability to help the track and trace knowing on who's been on site and obviously the adequate contact details Again, no one size fits all. Um, we've had various different requests from various different customers, um, but but our response has always been um, to, to you know to adapt the system, whether that be hardware, software, or a combination of the two, to help play that role of I guess COVID nineteen visibility through the workforce management system. So uh, you mentioned the uh, debate earlier uh, in government, and uh, there's obviously been a lot of talk about preventing COVID transmission on construction sites. And I wanted to ask you what uh, additional measures uh, these construction sites can put in place to manage transmission through the lens of your business and more generally. Again, this is obviously, you know, there's various different opinions within the market. um, And I suppose this is, you know, my answer is also probably going to be one of those. I think um, first and foremost, obviously, I'd say that this is new to everybody. Uh, everyone is is reacting um, to something that that is largely, um, you know, uncontrollable. You can't see it, you can't touch it. You know, no one's ever managed a construction site um, through a, through a pandemic. So, 
I think, in short, and if I was to be fair, that you know this is all a risk-based uh, review, um, and obviously every construction site is is different. And again, that comes back to our approach that I mentioned earlier in terms of trying to understand customers' challenges. But obviously. Um, If I was to talk practically, there's obviously a number of technology elements that can help give visibility um, and obviously also practical measures that site can put in place to help manage transmission and and risk. And obviously, majority of them, I'd say, probably fairly fall into 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 common sense as well. From a practical point of view, um, as we see from government guidance, hygiene is obviously key. Um, and obviously, I mentioned earlier, we've got the range of hand sanitization systems that, that we deployed. Um, we do both integrated and unintegrated, so the automatic dispensers, um, but also the pop-up stations that um, have also been very well received in the marketplace, uh, which we also partnered with uh, the Lighthouse Club charity on them as well to support them, because uh, naturally times like this, they're probably busier than ever um, in terms of their resource demand. Welfare attendance as well, that's something that we've seen fairly popular, obviously, you know, almost a, a sort semi-security role um, in terms of obviously managing um, social distancing on site and also um, reaffirming the need for social distancing for people that are obviously going about their, their, their busy day jobs. And then obviously from a technology point of view, there are systems that can help manage um, COVID transition mis- at risk. Um, and obviously I say that with a bit of a a bit of a caveat, I suppose, but um, the facial detection and the temperature measurement devices that we've that we've been deploying have um, been very well received. Um, you know, they're incredibly accurate to, to 0.3 of a degree. It's about understanding that these are you know risk mitigators. They don't they don't completely remove the risk. Um, but they enable sites to help manage that risk, um, providing they're used in, in in the right manner. Oh, and then finally, we've got software systems uh, that manage obviously processes and procedures both on and off site. Um, so the remote inductions, the online induction, the training systems to make sure that anyone that is coming back onto site fully understands that site's processes around COVID uh, risk management, but obviously the the primary element being that actually we're delivering that remotely rather than having everyone in an induction room um, where obviously you're increasing the chance of a, of a transmission risk. So challenging, but um, I think uh, we've, you know, the products and, and, and services that we brought to market have been very well received by our customer base. Obviously, your company offers technological measures to uh, help these things. And I, I wanted to ask you how easy it is to em- uh, implement and maintain these measures. Depends on um, what you're implementing, um, but we have our own in-house um, training and implementation team. So we actually help our customers through that implementation process, um, whether that be advice or guidance um, or whether that actually be the physical um, assistance with the physical rollout of whether it be processes, policies, procedures or technology. The, the software can obviously be, be tailored um, to suit individual customers' need. It's incredibly configurable. So we work with customers um, on-site or off-site to get them up and running as quickly as possible. Generally, it's very easy to implement, but obviously I, I say that with a caveat of the system is only as good as the way that it is used. So the implementation goes far beyond biosites involvement of, of initial setup and implementation. Obviously, you've then got the day-to-day management of the system that, that goes on with that. Uh, but obviously, we train people up to ensure that they've got the adequate trained resource uh, to, be, to be able to deliver that. Um, we've also got dedicated technical installation support teams on hand to support sites um, whenever they need assistance, um, be that remotely or be that on site. 
Um, so in a short answer to your question, it's, it's fairly easy to implement all of these solutions, um, providing the customer understands the way that they're to be used. But obviously, again, that comes back largely to us in terms of understanding the customer's challenges and making sure that we're proposing um, the, the right solution for the challenges that they've got. So it's very much a collaboration piece for us as a business. And how have your customers responded to these challenges and how do you think they've implemented them? Yeah, very well on the whole, definitely very well. Um, I think that, again, comes back to the relationships that we've got with our client base um, and how we operate as a business in terms of being um, open, honest and, and, and collaborative with them to understand the challenges and make sure that we're developing the right solutions. So on the whole, I think they've you know, responded very well. We've had some fantastic feedback. Of course, obviously, in the early days, there was quite a lot of noise in the market in terms of what people should be doing, shouldn't be doing, government guidance, um, various different technologies coming coming through the loop. But as I said, rather than sort of just have a product offering, ours is very much that collaborative um, approach. But I think as well, it's also shown how quickly the industry can respond to challenges and adapt to new solutions um, to effectively manage the risk posed by COVID. So I think, you know, hat off to, to the industry. Um, it's been a, a quite a curveball thrown at people over the last few months. And on the whole, um, I think I think everyone's dealt with it incredibly well. Yeah, I'd like to go into that a little bit more, actually. Obviously, you mentioned collaboration with different sectors within the construction industry. I wanted to ask you how you've been working with those uh, and how you've been collaborating. So our approach is to work collaboratively with our customers. As I said, we can't just push products to market. Um, we certainly couldn't be where we are today. Um, and we certainly wouldn't have the product offering that we've got today if it wasn't for our customers. They, they essentially form our roadmap. I'm not a construction expert. I don't do construction. I barely do DIY. Um, so we can't be sort of uh, thinking of these solutions and bringing them to market. We, we have to have that input from our customer base to ensure that, that we're on the, on the right track. So which is good because essentially, you know, we, we rely on each other. Um, as much as each other. Do you think that there's there's any positives that we can take from the way the pandemic's changed the industry? Has there been a, a shift uh, to the implementation of more technological solutions? And, and is that a positive thing? Yeah, massive positives that I think we can take, um, well, if you can take a positive from the pandemic. Um, obviously, the pandemic has is, is certainly accelerated the use of technology and construction. Um, it's opened people's eyes up because they've, they've had to make that change. Um, you know, people don't like change. Um, we, we, we know that. Um, but this has been, you know, almost forced. So people have had to say, well, hang on a minute. You know, I've, got, I've now got a situation. I need to find a solution. So uh, people's eyes have been opened up to, okay, well, I can adapt some technology to do that for me. Whereas previously... It would, you know, we'd have to do a fair bit of, of kind of lobbying and case studies and, and working with clients to kind of get that digitalization process. So we've seen a huge um, shift and adoption um, for the use of technology in construction. And I think that's just highlighted how resilient the industry can be um, and how those in construction can respond quickly and admirably to change. Um, construction is actually... Uh, you know, now could be held up as a you know great example of how to respond in a crisis and how to adapt to of ways of working, but also continually adapt to ways of working. And you don't think there's sort of any going back to the way things were now? You think it's a, it's a matter of pushing forward? Um, yeah, there's pros and cons, of course. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the phrase "the new normal" keeps obviously being being thrown around, not just in this industry but in life as a, as a whole. Um, the industry was already on this on an adoption curve. Um, when it came to technology, and uh, we've seen that over the last few years, I mentioned earlier in the podcast about the shift from the, our customers' perception of what they purchased from us has moved away from 
Um, you know, back in the early days, you know, we were selling turnstiles and access control to construction sites. Uh, before the pandemic, it had moved away from that already. You know, it, it much more become about, um, you know, the data and the analytics and, and how they could make cultural changes um, to, you know, to use this data to make better informed decisions as a, as a business. That was already on um, an adoption curve, but COVID has certainly accelerated things uh, massively, forced people to see the benefits of it and, and it kind of forced that adoption. Um, and I say forced, obviously, people have wanted to adopt it, of course, but but they perhaps have adopted it a little earlier than they would have done, but also a little more aggressively than they would have done. I don't see people moving back because there is now a greater understanding of what that can do. We're actually seeing people want to push on further. So companies that eyes that have been opened up to the data that they can potentially get and how they can control things and how they can use technology and construction to enhance that. Now they've sort of got, I guess, a taster of that. Um, we're now getting questions thrown at us to say, well, hang on a minute, if we can do that, could, you know, could we do this and could we develop on top of that? And, and you know, how do we get visibility of, of all different types of things? Um, so I actually see it going the other way. I think I see it leapfrogging um, and excelling in that even more so. And finally, uh, do you sort of have any advice to site managers or maybe through the lens of, of embracing technology with a view to the next six months and as hard as it is to look beyond the virus, but beyond the virus uh, sort of in the future? I, I think uh, the first piece of advice that I would give um, it's probably more of a statement than anything that um, I revert back to something I said earlier in terms of this is new to everybody. Um, we've seen a lot of companies putting groundwork in during the early days to make sites COVID secure. Um, and we all need to work collaboratively to make sure that the focus remains uh, on safety and, and efficiency. And as I said, we can't do that without our customers. Um, obviously, our customers can't do that that without us. Yeah, I guess the main piece of advice I'd give is, is, is to stay calm, stay safe and stay positive. That will do us for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. Really appreciate your time. No problem at all. Thank you for your time. Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people. Now we've all seen those TV shows where builders are tasked with makeovers in super short timescales. But what's it like behind the cameras? Peter Finn knows as one of the best known faces on Irish TV. Pete, hi. Thanks, Steve. How are you? I'm good. Really good to uh, welcome you on to Constructive Voices. Uh, you're going to be a regular voice on this podcast. And I thought it would be a good idea to find out more about you and your career journey. And we'll come on to the TV bit in a minute. But tell us about your years of experience in the construction industry. How did that start and, and where are you with it now? Thanks, William Steve. So happy to be on board. Uh, very exciting project we've got going on here and really looking forward to delivering what I can to the podcast. So Peter Finn is my name. I'm a 40-something-year-old from Dublin and I um, have my own construction company and I'm married with three beautiful daughters. I started to serve my apprenticeship as a carpenter when I came out of school. I always had my heart set on uh, entering into the construction game. I got a fantastic apprenticeship as a carpenter, but it also I also got a, a house-building apprenticeship is the best way to put it because the guy that I was lucky enough to get my apprenticeship with Huey Riley was his name, and he was a fantastic house builder. Done off, done one-off houses. We basically entered a field, and we dug the foundations, we built the walls, we put the roof on, and we finished. You know, when the whole uh, project was completely finished for handover, so it was a fantastic um, experience to get. As as an apprenticeship, I really got a, a house building apprenticeship as well as a carpentry one. I went on then and decided to 
do some part-time studying as well. So I, I upskilled a little bit and I got some management uh, certifications and I always had my heart set on opening my own business. And I did that about five years after I'd served my apprenticeship and I started doing small bills, extensions, renovations, the same thing that everybody starts off with, kind of turning my hand to whatever work came my way. And then I partnered up with a, a another guy that I previously worked with and we are still together since. And I call us a medium-sized construction company that we do high-end, one-off domestic projects and some commercial work. And obviously then the little bit of TV work has come our way as well. So it, it sounds like you're the kind of person who, you, you know, you set your targets, you, you know what your goals are and you set out to achieve them and, and you know, to have your own company and for that to be growing you know just a few years after serving your apprenticeship is is pretty impressive very much um i'd like to say it was all plain sailing but the reality of life is there was highs and lows and you learn more from your mistakes than you do from your your wins as they say in, in the football game and uh look at it, it it was it was a learning experience and i suppose the construction industry uh has evolved so much from the time that i've started it, you're, you're always learning when it comes to construction the technologies have gone through the roof uh, especially in the last 15 years and I think you know you have to be proactive and you have to stay on top of those things so yeah I, I do I set my targets I put a little bit of a plan in place and uh, I, I try and make my my dreams become the, the reality Um don't always get there I've still got a few dreams that I want to get to but you know what I'll keep on Keep on shooting for the stars. Fantastic. And we're, and we're going to be chatting on every episode about various different topics um, relating to construction. But I thought on this first one, it would be really good, as you've mentioned it already, you know, the TV stuff. I think that's something that is is very interesting. And, and we've seen that grow over the years with a lot of builders sort of making their way onto our screens, both here and in, in Ireland, obviously, and around the world. And there will be people listening thinking, you know, I, I fancy a bit of that. I've, that's, that's, that sounds like a good gig to have. How did you get into doing TV? Yeah, well, it, it is. Uh, all these things are a funny story, I suppose, but uh, I can just clarify one thing. When you're a TV builder, you are officially a Z-list celebrity. So make sure if you're listening to this, you realise <laughs> what you're aiming for is to become a, cele- a Z-list celebrity. So, um, and oh, look, I, it was a kind of a chance meeting that got us started. Um, there's a show in Ireland called Room to Improve, an architect called Dermot Bannon. And the very first series of that show, uh, we were asked by an engineer that we had done previous work with would be interested in, he, the way he put it was, helping out on a TV show. So then we got a phone call from the, phone call from the company, uh, the production company. We met with them and very quickly afterwards we were on site. So it was a bit of a, I suppose, baptism of fire because, you know, it was the first time that show had ever been filmed in Ireland so I didn't really fully understand the concept of the show um, and then it was an actual live building project and you're under the microscope very quickly and all your your work is, is being filmed and I suppose there's nerves that come with that but I suppose I just relaxed into it and I got on very well with Dermot early in the process um, and I I was quite comfortable speaking to the camera for whatever reason I don't really know why I was just relaxed doing that and I had a bit of banter with Dermot. I had a little bit of a row with him. There was a few, you know, high drama moments and they seemed to enjoy that part of it. But I, at that point, I was only one builder on six shows of one series. So then they asked me to do the second series. This time they asked me to be the builder on two of the shows um, and went from there. So the concept of that show is that he's the architect on every job, but there's a different builder on each show. Sometimes the builder gets some uh, good screen time. Sometimes they don't. 
I suppose they gave me a little bit more screen time than others. And then they kept asking me to come back and, and do the show. So that was the start of it. Um, and then after that, it morphed into, I was approached then to go and do the second show, which is called Home Rescue, which is still uh, being recorded at the at the moment. We just finished our, our last series just before Christmas. It went on screen and uh, our next series is is in, in the plans. And I think there's some exciting news that this year it used to just be a half an hour long. Now it's going to an hour long. And it's a it's a different concept, really. It's a makeover show where myself and an architect called Roshin Murphy, the two of us work together with our teams and we go in and we basically got three days to blitz a, a house and correct all the wrongs that have been done before and basically make the house more usable for the, the homeowner. I really had to decide did I want to do it or not. I, when I was asked to do the home rescue show, I actually said no because we were so busy. And I just didn't think that I had the time to do it. But then once I met them and I kind of got the full concept of the show, I I really enjoyed it. And um, it wasn't until it actually went on, on TV that I realized how much you were actually giving to the homeowners. Like it is a real feel good factor and a real kind of give back people who have got, you know, some sort of trauma in their life is usually is usually who who are the participants involved in it. So some, you could be rearranging a house to make it more accessible for someone who may have a disability or sometimes life just gets on top of people and they've got a lot of clutter in the house and the house isn't functioning. So we clear that out completely and then we redesign and hand the house back to them. So it's a very honest show and it uh, it certainly gives people in, an insight into uh, what you can do on a fairly small budget with, with Home Rescue Whereas the other show was a full scale job, it could have been a full extension renovation, and that that show was actually developed. It, the the room to improve show, which I was originally on, is now like a, a household staple in Ireland. It's on series eighteen or nineteen, I think. So it, it's progressed itself, and I kind of morphed off and done a, on a, a different show. Yeah, I mean these shows yeah. are hugely, hugely popular. I mean, uh, you know, we're talking obviously about your career on Irish TV, but uh, in the UK, you know big shows like Homes Under the Hammer that's been on for 18 years now and DIY SOS. Also, people kind of think, yeah, that, that sounds, you know, a similar sort of concept to uh, to the to the Home Rescue show. Well, I mean, we see it on screen and it all looks great because it's like, okay, we're going to do this in whatever the timescale is. Behind the scenes, though, is it really that, you know, if it's like we've got to do this in three days, is it three days or is it actually three months and it, it's made to look like three days? You know, come, tell, tell us the uh, the inside story here, Pete. <laughs> of course, of course. That's why I'm here. Look, being totally honest, our show does only take three days. The, the filming crew are only paid for the three days. The budget is only there for the three days. So we've no choice. We have to get the, the, the show done in the three days. The whole homeowners move out for uh, three days and they, they move back in and live in the house on the final day so we've no choice we can't extend it even if we wanted to but there are other shows that I've heard rumours that maybe uh, what you see on screen may have been slightly elongated in reality but the shows that I've been involved in have been set times and that's the way it's done but those set times create uh, some serious pressure because as I said to you there the homeowners are moving back in at a set time on a set day, no matter what. So we've got to, I suppose, break it back down that this is a construction project. And while it's a TV show, it's a TV show about a construction project. And I'm always very conscious of that. I want to make sure that the people are getting the house back in a very uh, fit condition and obviously an improved condition from the way that it was previously. So you, you have to make sure that you get everything done as best as possible. 
in reality, I don't want to have to go back and do snagging after they've moved back in either. So we do try and finish everything as quick as we can. So the pressure does be on, does be seriously on. And, uh, you know, trying to get the information from the designer can be tricky. Trying to uh, get other elements of of the, uh, the work done can be tricky. Like external elements can have a huge factor, like the weather. If you've got, you know, hail or uh, heavy rain, high winds, you've no choice. You still have to get the work done. So we set up tents outside and we've often, we had two jobs where the tents got, got blown down the road halfway through the through the project. So that was an interesting experience. Um, and then there's, there's obviously the onset tensions and difficulties in, involved in, you know, a lot of people uh, trying to get a lot of work done in a short period of time. And then that little thing called COVID came along and that obviously threw another spanner in the works and made things more difficult as well. But look, you know, the most important thing is you have to have a very strong team around you and everybody has to understand the end goal. And the end goal has to be that, yes, we're making a TV show, but we're also um, carrying out a construction project here. So you need to give the content, which keeps the viewers uh, watching in terms of, you know, the bit of fun, the bit of banter, you know, the high drama. Um, we don't manufacture that on our show. It is fairly honest. Um, I'm, a, I'm a, a kind of a, uh, a hot-headed redhead, so it doesn't take much to kind of get a reaction out of me. And I, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't have a poker face, so I, my emotions are worn on my sleeve, which is always great viewing. And so myself and Roisin do have our, our moments. Um, but look, we all we're always uh, focusing on the end goal. Yeah, no, exactly, and we love that kind of balance between the fun and the banter, but also just, hey, here's some professionals doing a fantastic job. You know, that, all of that makes the show work. What what kind of budgets are you working with? Does that vary widely with the different projects or is it kind of a set budget for each episode? On our show, we have our set budget. Um, IKEA actually are a sponsor on our show and uh, they supply us with a certain amount of material and then I have a budget that I have set. So it, it, the Home Rescue Show is quite an achievable one. You're only talking kind of, between ten and fifteen thousand euros is usually the, the 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 budget. Like that's not including obviously filming and all that type of stuff. That's actually the construction budget. So it's quite small. Again, it's only three days. So you know it's it's a, a manageable kind of uh, budget. But then room to improve. Like I, I done jobs and that that would have been like four and five hundred thousand euro size projects. Like, there has been shows and that that were close to a million euros. And then DIY SOS is a completely different ballgame altogether. They they actually did an Irish version of that this year, and it was very successful. But it, I think it was, uh, it had quite a lot of difficulties. Uh, the COVID pandemic kicked in as they were filming as well, which added more, but le- a lot of logistic issues. That's a huge uh, undertaking. And I think the guys in, in, in England do such a good job on it. And they've been doing it for so long that it's like second nature to them. So I think trying to take up, uh, a concept that's already happening is, is a tricky one. Whereas the show that I'm involved in, we we kind of made it our own and we we kind of have our own little way of doing it. We are going to go to an hour this year, so it's going to expand. So you know, you just have to roll with roll with the punches. We always uncover different aspects that you wouldn't have seen or wouldn't have expected, and they call they they cause obviously issues and throw spanners in the work. But uh, that uh, that always creates nice drama, and nice storyline, so that the TV crowd to be delighted while I'm pulling my hair out. You know. That gives good old, good old TV uh, to people watching it, you know. Exactly. And, I mean, talking about COVID, obviously, you know, on any site, the whole thing has caused some issues. But, but often with these uh, TV shows, the whole thing, because there's that set time constraint, the whole thing works because you are able to have kind of everybody there at the same time pretty much. You know, things have to be done in that way. But obviously with social distancing – 
that is just not possible in the same way. So how, how's that been managed? Yeah, it, it certainly was was very tricky. It was a huge challenge for us, like everybody with COVID. Like, I mean, no one had ever experienced this before. So we were kind of learning on the job. Um, we obviously had government restrictions that we had to abide by as well. Um, but we, we just, we had to be even more organised than normal. We had set times when my construction guys would start and the TV crew would come in at set times. We all wore masks. You know, sanitisation happened at the right times. We made sure the place was well ventilated. There wasn't too many people allowed into each area. We always had to keep two metres apart. So you throw that in into three days of of a makeover mayhem and it it, uh, it certainly made things difficult but uh, we, we still managed to film um, our our six shows uh, during the pandemic we, we, we were lucky enough just to finish the final recording just before another lockdown happened in Ireland um, and I know DIY SOS did the same thing in Ireland as well. It filmed, uh, it had to stop for one stage and then it came back. So the call would have definitely been a challenge in the construction industry. Um, but I do think we've been very lucky in the construction industry that we've had uh, such dramatic um, improvements in our health and safety worldwide in the last few years. Um, in the last, definitely the last 10 years, it's really taken significant steps forward. So it was just like another protocol that was already added to protocol that was there already. And everybody just complied and, and, and did what they, that they needed to do. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And of course, I mean, construction, you know, health and safety is is, is first and foremost everywhere. You know, certainly should be on all the good sites it is. So, I mean, yeah, big challenge this time. But there are there are always health and safety challenges, and um, and the construction industry, you know, rises above those and and and, and beats them every time. Um, now I know you've joked that you know you're a Z list celebrity if you're a TV builder, but even even Z list opens up doors. You get invited to do game shows. You get invited to be on the celebrity versions of all kinds of things. But what has being on the TV as a builder done for you personally and professionally? It doesn't automatically mean I can suddenly start charging a higher rate. I wish it did, <laughs> but it, it, uh, it, it, it certainly <laughs> it certainly gives you credibility, I suppose, is the main thing. Um, look, there's no better advertisement for your work than it being shown on a TV show on such a consistent basis. I suppose people get to know my personality. They get to know, understand my principles and, and how I react to difficult situations. So all those type of things come across. So I suppose it, it certainly gives people into a, an insight into the person. Um, I think as soon as people see you on television, they automatically have a different perception of you. Some of them are correct and some of them are incorrect. Um, you know, it, it opens up very unusual doors. You kind of hinted at it there. Like you do get offers to do some very unusual stuff that you never would have been asked to do. Um, I've been lucky enough to get some brand ambassadorship out with it from, from different companies. So I suppose it brought a little bit of revenue to, to me that way. Um, and it, it, it certainly is a positive uh, addition to my CV at the moment um, I do get you know people think as soon as you're on TV that suddenly you're a millionaire so I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll make sure that I <laughs> that that is a fallacy you are not a millionaire as soon as you go on television in fact you know sometimes I make more money staying on on, on, on site of my own jobs than I would on TV but it certainly opens up doors it gives you opportunity that you wouldn't have normally got and it really is very hard to put a finger on it, but I, I, I find myself in situations where I'm meeting people or opportunities come my way and I'm going, how did this actually happen? I actually don't know how this happened, but, you know, this person kind of knows more about who I am because I've been on television and now they kind of are, are, are approaching me because of that. What's the most unusual thing you've been kind of offered or asked to do because of your your, your TV profile? That's an interesting question. Um, there's there's very strong rumours of, of Dancing with the Stars, might be coming my way one of the oh, days. Um, wow. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm a better builder than I am a dancer, I can tell you that. But uh Would you do it though? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Oh I, I it would be it would be a fantastic experience. I really enjoy it, but I also am very aware that those things are very time consuming. To 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 be able to form and do what you need to do on live television the way that those guys do it. You would really need to put your heart and soul into doing it. Look, I wouldn't be against it, but look, again, I haven't had an official offer just yet. And uh, COVID has actually stopped it from happening this year. So we'll see. I, I might get a bit of training in and go for it next year. Nice one. Cheers, Pete. Chat to you next time. Constructive Voices brought to you by Lewis Access. British made scaffold towers and access products. Just like a chef needs quality ingredients, builders need the best materials and the construction industry relies on the aggregates industry to ensure the right products are available where and when they're needed. Henry MacDonald has been talking with Guy Woodford, editor of Aggregates Business Europe and International magazines, and asked him to outline the industry he covers. It's everything to do with producing aggregates and uh, gravel sand and associated products with aggregates. So it's very wide ranging and it's the quarries themselves that obviously that produce the aggregates but it's also we're writing about the machines used in quarries so the crushers and screeners the the loading models wheeled loaders excavators the hauling models conveyors all the wear parts all the engines obviously that go to power the plants in terms of the global aggregates industry we're talking about a 45 billion tons a year production industry it's huge of which china is about 40 percent of that Within Europe um, as a whole, we're talking about about 3.07 billion tonnes in 2018's output. Um, UK has uh, 400 million tonnes a year business in terms of aggregates and manufactured mineral products. So it, it's really big numbers, really big stuff, and obviously, uh, you know, of huge value um, to, to the wider society as well as the industry itself. In terms of sand and aggregates in general, what proportion of that trade that you report on nationally feeds into the supply for the UK? Well, it's quite good to put it in some context. Now, a big um, association for, for the UK mineral products sector is the MPA, the Mineral Products Association. They've done some very interesting stuff. So in terms of figures, as I said, 400 million tonnes a year of aggregates and manufactured mineral products is what we produce in Great Britain. Now, that's four times the volume of, of energy materials, uh, including oil, gas and coal. So that gives it a nice context. Annual turnover of the industry for minerals and uh, mineral products entry, £16 billion. Gross value added generated by the industry, £5.8 billion. I mean, huge numbers. Uh, the value of construction output from uh, the main customers for, for the MPA uh, members is 172 billion, 81,000 people employed in the UK mineral products sector, 3.5 million jobs supported in the supply chain for the mineral products um, sector in, in Great Britain. And how important is the, the construction industry to that trade in terms of a symbiosis? In terms of, con of construction building, they require the ag aggregates for, for obviously for, for road building, for residential commercial construction. It's it's very much they're uh, relying on each other because obviously they're building material suppliers. They need the market. They need the construction market. So it's it, they're crucial. It's a crucial close working relationship. It's the same with the um, equipment manufacturers. They need the the quarry sector and the building um, supply sector to be good. So then. Um, more quarry operators will be looking to renew their plant. Uh, so it's very, very um, integral 
relationships, very close relationships with each other. And in terms of aggregates and what they supply, the, the basics, if you like, in terms of demand from builders, big and small, has that fallen during yeah, the I mean, it's, both in the UK and globally? Yes, it, I mean, it, there's no doubt. There's no doubt it, it has. I mean, there has been some rebound, some positive uptake in Q4 2020 compared to the previous quarter. But the full year, I mean, certainly in the UK, it was down um, you know, considerably, uh, the four-year sales. I mean, I, I'm, in terms of quoting some stats here, ready-mix concrete and mortar down 18.2% 2020 compared to, to 2019. We've got aggregates down by 10.5%, asphalt down by 8.6%. So that's on full year. But the more positive picture is the Q4. They were up on Q3. You know, we've got ready-mix concrete up 9.1%. Primary aggregates, which is crushed rock, sand and gravel, up 7.8%. Asphalt up 5.5%. Water up 3.1%. So things are coming back. But it is a very um, naturally conservative industry anyway. So there's a a lot of um, built-up demand. I mean, in terms of for equipment and in terms of um, actual products, there there are so many projects going. So the demand is there. But there's a natural caution in terms of ordering levels of materials and levels of equipment because people are wanting to to know how things are going to go with the vaccination rollout for instance with covid uh, and how the economy generally in the uk and the wider world is going to bounce back so there's a little bit of a, a waiting game in some respects albeit there is some massive infrastructure projects you know which require a lot of material so it's it's going to be a very interesting picture the next six months or so as to how much the actual demand, which is there for, for some key works, um, is met, or whether some of the companies are a little bit more cautious on how much they're spending and investing. You were saying there are key works, big projects. Can you think of any offhand? I can think of many, Henry. I mean, HS2, Hinkley Point Nuclear Power Station, Heathrow Airport expansion. We've got uh, the Lower Thames Crossing um, and the 2022 Commonwealth Games in Birmingham, just to name, just to name a few. I mean, all of those are a huge demand in, in terms of for building materials. Um, then you add, add in, you know, the levelling up agenda, which has been much discussed, obviously, by, by this government. Uh, heavy emphasis within that on new transport and, and other infrastructure, again, requiring huge amounts of uh, building materials. Wider than that, you've got the whole green agenda within the UK building materials sector, not only from the bigger players, in the small to medium-sized enterprises, and that, that's mirrored globally. You know, in the UK alone, you've got some, some huge names like Aggregates Industries, Hanson, Tarmac, CMEX UK, Breeden. All of those firms have got um, green product lines, very green, low uh, carbon footprint uh, on the production of, of things like cement uh, and concrete. It's a huge, huge, um, of huge, huge importance to the industry. Uh, and ties in with the whole sustainability agenda, which is which is massive. Just pause a bit and look at you know the materials you report on that you see you write about. What exactly are those building blocks? What would be the key materials that feed into the construction industry? Well, I mean, obviously, aggregates itself is very key. Um, aggregates, um, sand, gravel, all of these elements that are used in in road construction, that are used in residential, used in in, in residential and commercial construction. So it all feeds in um, to the industry. It, it's absolutely vital. You know, you have to have a very strong mineral product sector and uh, good supply lines 
local supply, you know, to some of the key construction um, firms. Um, generally, in terms of quarries and mineral production, um, they don't go big distances. You don't want to have um, a quarry, for instance, a long way away from where a lot of the work's going or a lot of the construction work. It's important to, to obviously have a low a lower sort of footprint in terms of your logistics and transport uh, and to build up those relationships with the local suppliers and a, a very strong understanding of, of what's required from both. Do you think the business you write about is also a good gauge yeah. of the overall health of the construction industry? Very much it is. The, the same sort of relationship between um, building materials um, demand and construction equipment demand. You know, it all ties in. The, the numbers, whether it's up or down, tends to be very similar. And you can see a lot of correlation between when things are good and when things are bad. And if construction projects are, are more muted, then generally the, the building materials demand is more muted. Do you think, objectively, that there will be a post-pandemic bounce that will impact on both industries? Yeah, I, I, I very much do. As I said, I mean, I stress that the construction and uh, mineral products industries they are naturally conservative um, industries. You know, there is a very much a, a sort of uh, wait and see in some in some respects. When it, it's some canny people who you know who run these businesses, they they don't sort of throw everything at it. They're waiting to see how the market is. Albeit when you know there is obviously the, the, some big infrastructure going on, we had the budget, and there was some very interesting and big stuff for the mineral products sector. We've talking about a freeze on the aggregates levy. For 2021 to 22, but then you've also got the um, the red diesel subsidies being taken out. You know, which obviously uh, is another tax potential 100 million pound tax raid, as as described by the MPA on the mineral products sector, because they've got to find those monies where there was some some subsidy before. It's very much a mixed picture. Uh, but if you look at the wider economy. Um, there was also very not good news from the OBR, the Office for Budget Responsibility. That's the you know an independent watchdog over over the economy, and they're talking about a four percent growth for the UK economy in 2021, a seven percent rise in 2022, and then a more modest, if you like, one one and a half percent 2023-2024. So, so the general picture is very very positive, but you're talking about an industry that is um, very, as I say, conservative and watching how things are and how the economy is progressing. So I do think there will be a bounce back. There's certainly the infrastructure and projects which will need the materials. But in terms of, you know, immediately going out and spending money and, and, and investing in new plant and, and investing in, in widening your production capabilities, that might be take a little bit longer as the companies are adjusting to, to exactly how the economic environment is going to be. It's going to be very fascinating to see um, how quickly things do come back. You know, for, for the average person working in the building industry, whether it's the foreman or on, on the site or the workers pouring the concrete, maybe they don't think about its origins in terms of the basic materials. Maybe you could tell us about the kind of machinery and the new technologies that are transforming the aggregates industry. Yeah, in, ter in terms of the, 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 the quarries, I mean, you can get various you know, premium models on the crushing and screening side, uh, on the, the loading, hauling, converse. There, there's so much. It all boils down, really, to, to the lowest cost per tonne. You add it all together. So if you invest in, in a, a premium brand crushing and, and screening uh, and you have the very latest loaders, so they run on great fuel efficiency, low idle time so you're sort of monitoring how your your, your operation is running perhaps you've got say um, uh, a wheel loader operator 
that has a particular issue where they don't switch the engine off on their lunch break, you know, all this sort of thing. So that increases your fuel costs. There's so many things within each element of a quarry operation that if you look at, you can drive down costs, you can increase efficiency. They, they all um, are interlinked. And it's all about trying to get that lower cost per tonne. We frequently, when we're writing about quarries, and we have quarry profiles where you've got more space to write, three or four pages on a particular site, that the, the lower cost per tonne and how sites are, are managed is huge. And you know the quarry bosses are looking to just lower those costs. There's been an increasing use on, on things like telematics and ma- machine automation, where you used to have several operators say of a, a crusher and a screener a member of staff standing there literally monitoring by the the plant what's going and flagging up a problem now a lot of it is done remotely via cameras um, so it's safer uh, and you can also monitor a whole site by a series of cameras you can intervene um, very quickly uh, just by the touch of a button and stop production it's it's much more slick it's much more efficient it's much more health and safety conscious uh, we've also got increasingly some of the bigger players are looking at very interesting stuff like AI, artificial intelligence, and stuff like blockchain and how they they manage their businesses and do the admin and, and the crucial um, ordering and things like that. That is only going to grow. The digitalization of the industry that's where it's heading. Alongside the green agenda, I'd say that the green agenda, the sustainability, and the digitalization of the quarrying industry, that, that's the future. That's, that's where it's all heading. I just want to, again, drill down on those two themes that you, you focused on there, first being AI. So are you saying in terms of costs, the robots basically, whatever shape or form they're in, that will be doing the work, a lot of the work, that that will lead to lower costs across the board right through to the, the building industry? Yeah, that's it, it. It does. Yeah, it's it's the use of algorithms and and efficiencies, identifying um, perhaps weaknesses in in, in how the, the business is running. I think I think it's going to be in, interesting in terms of the types of jobs in construction and the type you know types of jobs in in quarries where there will be a, a growing need for more IT skills, IT literacy, um, ability to. Um, you know, to sort of troubleshoot using the technology to, to, to drive down costs. So you'll still have an, a, um, the need for, if you like, the hands-on quarry face right there, the operators and such like. But you also need a lot on the strategic, on the management side to create the efficiencies and, and on the sustainability side and you know, identifying ways of improving your sort of green um, credentials. And in, vitally, um, these, this day and age, and certain um, national and local authorities, you don't get contracts to build unless you've hit certain criteria on the environment and, and certain ways of working. I mean, it's, it's huge, certainly in Scandinavia. You know, I've been there and I talked to quarry operators and construction firms, and they sort of led from a European perspective on the whole green agenda, on the whole um, way of working. For instance, um, you know, I've been to... Uh, you know, Sweden and Finland, so wider sort of Nordic. And you talk to, to them about working closer to cities where they've been crushing and screening firms who are doing a lot of either virgin material or their recycling work. Now, they only get contracts if their plant is of a certain noise level. So it has to be very low noise level. And they have um, state-of-the-art dust suppression on site for their employees, obviously. So it's, it's, it's a healthier 
environment to work in, but also just to get the contract. So that is a very interesting, more modern development where to actually get the work, you have to be greener. And in what practical ways, just to, to flesh out the whole sustainability theme, can quarries be greener, more eco-friendly? In terms of the actual on-site, so you have a lower volume in terms of plants. You have um, electric vehicles, more electric vehicles on site. That's a big thing. So you, you, your fuel costs are coming right down, but also your your carbon emissions have gone massive. You know, have gone because you know using electric vehicles. There's a big thing at the moment. A lot of work um, that the likes of Volvo are doing on autonomous trucks and autonomous quarry sites. They have a, a specific testing site. They set up uh, a quarry with Skanska, and they were running this quarry site with all electric. Um, hauling very very interesting work and they're looking to widen that out they're building a, a massive new um, autonomous uh, machine testing site in Eskilstuna one of their crucial sites in um, in Sweden and that's only going to grow so it's already happening in mining where it will have haul trucks they're going a set route to um, pick up material off a loader and perhaps take it for instance, to um, a ship, if it's being transported that way, take the material. So you take it from site, a set route, deliver it to, to a ship, come back, take more material, deliver it again. Now, because they're doing the same routes, it works. You know, that works, that can work well. Now, not every um, quarry site, you can run it like that because the actual machine movements maybe have to be a bit different depending on the material and what machines that they're working with. But on certain sites, you can certainly run an electric fleet going from A to B, A to B on a repeated basis all day. And then it, the actual producing um, of the materials, how you work, say, for you having a concrete plant on site, you just you have uh, everything from um, how it's powered. You, you're looking at, at greener um, power and, and all along the whole sort of process of, of producing the material every element, you, you, there are ways of, of becoming greener. Who's a final question? Is it going to be a global question, if you like? And it's given your experience and you've traveled around and you've all kinds of places around the world and quarries yeah. and other uh, sites. Uh, where do you, do you see the big growth centers in the world in the next few years? Increasingly, um, talking to people and obviously reading research and traveling, Africa is absolutely huge. I mean, in terms of the growth, as a continent, the diversity and um, the need for infrastructure is is massive and is and is being met. East Africa within Africa is a huge booming sector for on infrastructure and materials demand. Countries like Kenya, Tanzania, uh, Uganda, Ethiopia, R- Rwanda. We've got a story going in from our um, one of our freelancers in in East Africa looking at the Rwandan aggregate sector and it's absolutely you know huge huge demand very young population very um, big urbanization going on in Africa you know so there's a lot more cities that are, that are growing and will become mega cities as the population um, leaves more rural areas and seeks work in these these expanding cities West Africa as well within that you know Nigeria, Africa's most populous country and and its biggest economy. I mean, that's utterly huge. You have one of the the big um, building materials companies in Dangut, the Dangut Group, uh, absolutely huge on a global scale in, in terms of what they're they're doing. I mean, South Africa uh, is very interesting. You've got some very big players, the likes of PPC down there. Um, then I'd also look at China. Obviously, China currently 
we're talking about 40% of the world's um, aggregates demand is because of China and the ongoing works in China. Obviously, we have the likes of Belt and Road, the mega project. Um, but within China itself, again, the um, ongoing urbanization of China, there's so much more to do on that. And also another interesting one is India. Now, India is is set to become the world's most populated country in just a few years. Again, very young population, very sort of hungry in terms of um, the economy, very aspirational in in in, in parts of um, of India. Uh, so that's a, a, a very interesting one. And I've, I've been to India and I got to speak to many business owners, many, uh, visited many quarries. And, and it was interesting, you know, the, the, the ambition that's there. And you can see it when you're going from place to place, city to city. You can see all the buildings going up. You can see all the roads being built. It brings it alive. You know, it's not just something from a report you've read. You're actually seeing it and, and talking to these business operators. There, there's real hunger there and there's a real, a real willingness to invest in new technology, a real willingness to invest in um, state-of-the-art equipment, to train their staff. Um, the whole greener, uh, green agenda is, is also taking off in India. Um, so I'd definitely say Africa, China and India, that's where uh, the market's going to be really, really strong. I think we can be optimistic going forward, but we do need to embrace the way the industry is going with digitalization, with the greener ways of working, the more environmentally friendly ways of working. And I think the firms that do that will have a bright future. And that's all for this episode of Constructive Voices. Check out our website, constructive-voices.com and get in touch with us if you have a story to share or a comment to make. Please subscribe or follow on your favourite podcast app and leave us a review if you can. Thanks for listening and join us again next time when among the topics we'll be talking about apprenticeships and plastic waste. Constructive Voices brought to you by Lewis Access. British made scaffold towers and access products.